1: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm chopping it up with my dear friend and play cousin, Dr. Imani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University. Dr. Perry is on the program today to discuss her intellectual and political foundations. Her mother, a.k.a. the person that trained me at Simmons University, none other than Dr. Teresa Perry, who I call the GOAT, greatest of all time, if you don't know, Dr. Perry's affection for Black Studies, and much, much more. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Perry, aka uh, Dr. Imani Perry, the GOAT. How you doing? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. Um, You know, thank you again for the opportunity to chat with you really about, you know, your intellectual biography and and the other greatest of all time for those who didn't catch the reference, uh, aka Dr. Teresa Perry, also known as your mother.
0: Yes, my mama.
1: Yes. So to begin our conversation on today, when did you know that you wanted to become a scholar?
0: So it's a great question. Um, I, I, well, I'll start, it's almost sort of backwards. I started being very clear that I did not want to be a scholar because I associated, um, graduate school with the anguish of watching my mother write her dissertation. (laughs) And so I did not want to be a scholar. I, you know, I grew up in a kind of, in this kind of intensely intellectual cocoon and I didn't want to do that. At all. Um, and it was so, and in some ways, like there was a lot of different kind of moments of rebellion for me. Like, I didn't want to do social science. I didn't want to take any social science courses. I didn't, I wanted to write stories or be a VJ, which is a job that doesn't exist anymore, but was like <laughs> first produced music videos on like MTV, right? And then it was something that, you know, something that happened my sophomore year of college where it I realized that the thing that I loved which was reading and I loved writing that one could actually do that as a job and it was at that moment it seemed you know less um less vulnerable like than trying to be a novelist or a journalist or something right (laughs) Right? like okay i can just you know because it was a different time right where academia didn't feel so so i was like oh so i could actually do this thing school which i love for the rest of my life and that would be my job and then i started to think that's actually not a a bad thing you know that's all right right um so like i said yeah i was like 19 20 years old
1: wow yeah, and and I thought about this question because I was like, how do I want to start this? This is this is a little different of a of a format than you know uh, uh, our our other you know time on here talking about your uh, Black National Anthem book, and so you know I was like, well, how do I want to start? Well, let's start from the beginning. Let's let's think because I know you know people you know people always want to know you know these particular um, not only intellectual biographies but you know brief um, you know autobiographical bit from from the scholars that they hold so dear. Um, but speaking of people, oh, you—you got to. I
0: just just wanted to say something as a follow-up because I think one of the things that I've heard people say, or and I appreciate the way you asked the question, is like people will say things like, "Oh, you know, about me, she was born to be a scholar. She grew up around academic." And I just that really, I was I was nurtured intellectually, but there was no moment where I was pushed into anything scholarly. Mm. I watched a lot of TV. I stayed up late. I didn't have a schedule. Like I had a very, I did not have a kind of driven child rearing at all. The one constant was books, right? So reading ideas, that was the thing. So it wasn't, it was less that I was, I was not cultivated into this, but it was available because there, because books were more available than anything else for me.
1: Mm-hmm. No, and, and I think that's important because, you know, and, and I like the fact that you said um, that you weren't pushed necessarily that, you know, if anything, it was more, you know, just being surrounded by books all the time, you know, the things that you're around all the time, right? Whether it's, you know, for, for people who become athletes, like from, you know, the time you're in a crib, you have like a basketball or a soccer ball or something, just so happened that uh, Imani Perry had books.
0: I had books, and my and even with my grandmother. We had the encyclopedias at her house, but also she read the newspaper every single morning. So even the ritual of reading was like multi-generational in my family. Like you just you read.
1: Mm-hmm. now, where now, where's your family from?
0: Uh so. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. My mother was too, and most of her siblings, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents are from Huntsville, Alabama. And I say it that way because they would be, you know, my grandma was very clear. She was not from Birmingham. She was from Huntsville. <laughs> a different place. Or even neighborhoods matter in terms of where you're from, but, uh, or I will describe myself as being from Inslee. My mother's like, I'm not from Ensley. I'm from Titusville. It's a different neighborhood. She grew up in the neighborhood with Angela Davis and Condoleezza Rice and them and, the neighborhood. I I, you know, was came home from the hospital to was a former steel mill town that had been moved mm-hmm. to Birmingham. So yeah.
1: And it's interesting that you say um Condoleezza Rice because, you know, she's been in the news in the last day about um I saw her, I literally was listening to this on my way back from the archive here and I literally heard her talk about, you know, I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama and my mom said or my parents said, you know, uh, uh, racism effectively, effectively, what to to deduce her words down. Um, you know, the problem of racism is, you know, we shouldn't make white people feel bad about, you know, this and this, and kind of like how she thinks about race and, and racism now. And it's almost like you if, you, if you don't know who else was in Birmingham, you would think that that was just, you know, standard, right?
0: Right, not standard, and you know, I mean. Black people aren't immune from being wrong, so it's possible. <laughs> that, right? Right. I mean, right. But when you think about how... I will say this. Of that generation, and Sonia Sanchez, too, the yep. you know yep. that same generation, and they all... The thing that they share, right? So my mother, Angela, Miss Sonia, and mm-hmm. um, and even Condi, um, in her own sort of politically distorted way, the thing that they share is they will all talk about how Uh, deeply organized and independent Black Birmingham was, right? The institutions that that shaped their lives, the way that the community protected itself against white violence as as much as possible, the self-defense, guns everywhere, schools that were extraordinary, you know, that there's a real, there was a real um, kind of concerted and defiant culture. Now, you know, Secretary of State Rice interprets the defiance as though white supremacy wasn't there. Right. Which right. is, but you know, there is this kind of like dignity defiance. What, um, what uh, James Brown's sideman, Fred Wesley called Alabama conservative in this <laughs> kind of like kind of dignified posture is a real thing. And that, that was part of, that is, you know, part of that place.
1: Yeah. No. And and so, you know, we, we've been talking about your your mother here and bits and pieces here. So returning her specifically here, um, tell us about her own biography um, and, and where, you know, you had talked about where she's from and, and also how did she develop um, also as a scholar, too?
0: Yeah. So my mother almost never. I'm going to tell you this and then I'm going to say, Adam, because she loves you. I'm going to say Adam made me say all this because she's <laughs> incredibly <laughs> But my mother was um, identified very young as someone who was extremely brilliant. She was one of the people who um, really effectively was one of the desegregators of Loyola University in New Orleans, but spent much of her kind of social life over at Xavier, which was, is an HBCU in New Orleans. Um, they wanted her to go study at the Louvain in Belgium because she was a, a, an incredible philosophy and, and theology student. They let her teach at Xavier when she was still young. That was when Al Roberto was at Xavier. So they became friends at that time. Wow. They went to, went to Marquette together. Um, and then my mother did not want to go to Belgium <laughs> so, at all, right? Like she's like, you know, she's a, um, a young woman from Birmingham and, and they both went to Yale and so my, and my mother studied theology and philosophy there. And, you know, as happened in many cases in that period in the midst of the movement, she was not. And also, I'll say this one thing at Yale. She was one of four black women in the graduate school. Um, they all stayed in Helen Hadley Hall and they all left. So if you can imagine what it was like, they all left and finished their doctorates elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, to fast forward, she she had me. Then she moved back home. And then when I was a child, she went back to graduate school. But so, and for her, you know, she, part of the move between, I think, kind of academic contexts and other kinds of work, she did all kinds of interesting things. Like she was a counselor, she ran a drug abuse clinic, like she, you know, she did all these things um, because the life of the mind was about the movement. Right. So I'll tell stories to people about the kind of people who were around, right, like freedom fighters from, um, you know, Guinea-Bissau and like and Chile, who, you know, all these places. And it was this like intensely intellectual environment. But she was one of those people who was trying to figure out how do we get people free, black people you know, in the tradition of the black South, but also, you know, the colonized world writ largely. And so she so the books were about freedom ideas were about freedom and then she when she returned to graduate school when we you know we went I was born in Alabama we, she went back to Milwaukee with me and then went to, to Massachusetts to go to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and at that moment she thought well maybe I'll study law No, I'm going to study education but the idea of studying education was about the role of education in freedom fighting right um so I got this email recently from someone, which is very moving because both Bob Moses and Al Rabito recently passed, who were long, long time friends of hers. Mm-hmm. And he talked about my mother introducing him to both of them, to introduce introducing him to Al at when they were at Marquette, and then introducing him to Bob Moses when Bob Moses and family first returned from Tanzania, where they had gone after you know um, they left the South. Right. And, mm-hmm. so, but, you know, Bob's work in my mother will never trumpet this, but Bob's work in education also is part of how, you know, came out of that kind of intellectual community that they developed and that, you know, um, my mother worked with him at the beginnings of the algebra project and things like that. So it's always been like a thinker, but a thinker in the service of freedom. And particularly black
1: folks goodness and yeah and, and you know rest in peace to those humongous titan like figures you know robito and, and, and moses and um you know and, and, it, and it's just interesting thinking about um people that shape leaders and but also people who shape regular folk right in terms of how to think right i remember um I remember in the only class I took from a black person at Simmons College. Um it was taught by <laughs> it was taught by your mother. And um I, who was who was the activist? Um in was it Indisha um
0: Oh Adam May Holland. Yes. Yeah. And I
1: remember we read her um I, you know, we read her book and I was like, yo, for real? Like like I just remember like uh her, you know, myself out of a cola and, and all the folks, well, specifically black folks in the class, but like, like just, just our minds were just, you know, just, just overwhelmed by not only the subject matter, but also there's something to be said about how someone, as the 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 teacher, the professor in the class, how they can command a class via how they ask questions, right? It doesn't matter if you're, you know, the most, um, you know, rambunctious or, or charismatic, you know, you can be the quietest to the loudest, but the way you ask a question can really help shape how people think. Um, not, not necessarily what they think, but how they think. And, um, looking back, that class was literally six years ago. And I still like, I still have the syllabus and, and you know, and I've changed computers by this point. And so, Um, That that class was just, you know, race. I think it was race, resistance and resilience or something like triple triple R's. And so. So, yeah, that that class was just like, yo.
0: So, you know what you describing that makes me think of um, how much my mother supplemented my formal education. So I remember Hmm. coming home from college and with. The book Black Feminist Theory by Patricia Hill Collins, and being like, "This is it. This is what I want to do," and my mother being like, "Oh, I know, Pat. She used to work at the school with Sylvia back in the day. So my godmother Mm -hmm. started an Afrocentric school. My God, who's a nun, had started this at St. Joseph's Community School. She was, was principal of it. Patricia Hill Collins was a teacher in the school, and it, you know." And, you, and so it brought to life how these theories that we often read just as theories were born, right? Mm-hmm. And moments like that would happen all the time. Or when I read that book um, by Indisha Ida Mae Holland, and she tells this story of um, how she becomes part of SNCC because she's like, she's the sex worker at the time. And so she's switching, trying to seduce.
1: Bob, mm-hmm.
0: And he's like, why don't you come to the Nick office? And so that my mother gave me, I mean, they, they were friends, but like had told me who this man who used to take me swimming was to be able to piece together this quiet person who was great with kids is also this lionized figure. And so there was this way that. Yeah, because you. The history becomes real, but it also helps us know that we can step into history and do something significant, right? These are not these, you know, um, figures who were mythologized. They're human beings who just decided to dedicate their lives to something really meaningful. So yeah.
1: No, that's great, and, and and I know that when uh, your mom listens to this, she'll be like, "Y'all really done talked about me for X amount of time, but we we it's gonna be a little longer." Like <laughs> so I got I got one more question, okay. um, to to, to ask uh, about her because I also think that it's also important to, um, shine a light on the people who because I can't tell you how many times I've told people, and and I do this all the time. I'm like, yeah, I ain't gonna lie, y'all. Right-handed guy, I didn't even know who Dr. Ramani Perry was. But it was her mother who <laughs> who helped train me at Simmons, and then she was like, "Yo, you just go talk to my daughter." I'm like, "Who that?" And then do my googles, and I'm like, "Yo," and it's wild too. Um, prophets of the hood. I remember I bought it, and I posted it on Facebook, and my cousin, I didn't even know that she was like, you know, I didn't even know that she, you know, was was real, you know, deep reading to be quite honest. And I remember I posted, she's like, "Oh." I know i, I remember I've read that book a couple you know years ago, and she's like I think at the time she was like twenty three or twenty four yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and yeah so so it's just so so interesting how ideas and you know such can just occur but you don't know who knows right you don't know the 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 genealogy of their not only life but also of the of the ideas like you just highlighted
0: yeah
1: yeah oh yeah it's so like I said, one last question here on uh, uh, your mom i'm I'm always interested in lessons right the 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 kind of lessons that we derive from folks and so um if you know for the ones that you can you know air on new books and African American studies of course, um what are some of the most important valuable lessons that that your mother instilled in you that still ring true in your in your head today
0: yeah uh, the single most important lesson as a scholar and a writer that my mother gave me is not is never to underestimate what black folks have done. And I say it that way because so much of the so much of sort of these moments when I have found something or written something that that people think is new or groundbreaking it's because I have believed that black people have recorded or preserved things that in most of these graduate programs, we are taught either explicitly or implicitly, we don't have, right? So the assumption of deprivation or lack actually makes us weaker scholars. And so if you assume (laughs) that Black folks know things, and you ask questions or have recorded things or that, or have documented things, the discoveries that are possible are just breathtaking. So the deficit logics that, that we, that not only do we often take for granted, but that we are trained into so often at graduate programs have a cost, right? So that's the, I say, that's the single most important lesson um, as a scholar, as an educator, you know, my, my mother um, has always modeled deep care for me, for her students, completely. And I mean, from the time I was very small, this idea that to not take this imperious position as a professor, you know, that it is more, import- more important than having the perfect lectures and the perfect, you know, PowerPoint is actual care you know this is a human endeavor Um, and I I feel that deeply and it is what makes it feel most meaningful to be a professor
1: look amen to that honestly like going even going back to the question aspect right she's asking the question to get to, to the heart of the thing that we're trying to analyze here or the concept but not just for for the ends right it's to try to understand through a particular analytic freedom justice um and and a particular uh humanism i think that you know is just deeply embedded um in a way i think also into the soil of alabama in a way too right because that's also you know where she comes from um and and obviously you know we we'll, we'll talk at the end about this uh this book i hear that uh that a certain someone is is uh, coming out in january of 2022 or so i've heard through the grapevine <laughs> so um so, so so i have a question in terms of um interdisciplinariness and um your orientation as a scholar but it, we we could talk about that a little later but i think black studies right is is something is is a is a space that i feel like you are you know at the core i believe that you're a black state scholar right i think that, i don't think that's a a, a a a huge claim i think that's pretty on point so what was your actual introduction to black studies in your education
0: oh wow such a good question because i never i did not get a degree in black studies in college or in graduate school and i Got a lot of degrees and a lot of stuff. (laughs) I have a double major in college in American Studies and Literature, which was not English, it was a literary theory major. And then I went to law school, I had a doctorate in American Studies. So I should say, I'll start by saying, I think that Black Studies remains contested territory. Um, To the, I really do believe, I believe in, I'm interdisciplinary, I do believe in methods, but I believe that. Black studies has always required when you study when you study people who have been deliberately excluded, you have to develop more rigorous methods because there are ways of sorting and categorizing that won't necessarily be easily accounted for, right? And you know this as a historian, right? So, you know, what do you, how do you read the documents where names aren't listed or how do you, how do you use, you know, how do you cross reference to get information, right? So, um, so, but Black Studies, not as an academic discipline per se, but as really a kind of, um whole life disposition for me. In some sense, you know, I was born in 1972. So it was the heyday of, you know, there were Black children's books everywhere. There was, you know, the sort of, even as Black is Beautiful petered out, there was still a kind of Black nationalist sensibility. There was an incredible blooming of Black women's literature. There's a blooming of Black theater, right? So, you know, here's Here's August Wilson, here's Alice Walker, here's Tony Moore. I mean, there was so much and it was so superb. It was the best stuff happening <laughs> through the 80s. And then there's hip hop, right? So, you know, it wasn't, it was so my movement to Black Studies was was about love of things, of Black creativity. I started out studying race not black studies. I was like, I wanted to, that was the sort of political piece. The passion piece is what brought me to black studies. Right. So I didn't want to, no longer want to just say, I was trying to figure out what is like this extraordinary creative resilience of black people is just enchanting. And I also wanted to participate in it. You know, like, what does it mean for us to try to do, create beauty and meaning in the face of the persistence of white supremacy. Right. I wanted, I wanted to talk about it, but I wanted to be part of it too. Right. So that, mm-hmm. but I, I say it that way too, because we have been, you know, most people will trace black studies or African American studies to formally to the 1970s, but you know, it's a much older tradition you know, the entirety certainly of the 20th century, right? Late really starts in the late 19th century. So having the benefit of that sensibility that had been passed down for generations meant that I'll give one quick example. I may have yeah, yeah. to, but part of the reason I didn't want to major in African American studies in college. And I talk about this in, in the book South to America is that I didn't trust the way they talked about Tuskegee mm. so in school you know, Tuskegee, I learned I was supposed to think Tuskegee was hopelessly backwards and they ne- did nobody with there were no there was no classical education there, everything was vocational and they were uptight and they were white supremacists and turn a lot and all this stuff. Well, I grew up in a Tuskegee family where one it changed the social class of my family, right? Like mm-hmm. I came up becoming engineers, and it was this beautiful like enthusiastic Black space. It, I was like, so whatever there's, I that's wrong. Like that was in my head. It's like, they don't know what they're talking about, right? That's a, That was a particular African-American, it has, still has a lot of currency, right? So, but if that, and now I know as a scholar, wait a minute, if that's the only story, you can't explain Albert Murray and Ralph Ellison. You can't, you know, you, there's a whole tradition of intellectuals that came, came out of Tuskegee. you can't explain if the only story is you know, you also can't explain why Tuskegee is this the inception point of black school building all across the South. Yep. That's the only story, right? So there's so much. So the formal department for me at that time didn't tell me a story I already knew about mm. black institutional life. So when I so that's part so when I say I you know, when I think you're right, and I do I embrace black studies, but of a particular kind and i think it's really important to keep in mind that there are active debates that are still happening in the field that i think are worth happening you know we're worth engaging in
1: yeah definitely um that's the point of this you know about engaging in 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 debate ideas you know and, and such as about like hey things are gonna be at times contentious um and uh, and and yeah, I've I've had these conversations with some friends recently about the fact that like some of my, you know, I, I would I can actually say that like, you know, the new books in African American studies platform. You are the ninth. This is the ninetieth interview that I've done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so so this is nine, but but to to your point that you just talked about. I'm not a black, I am not formally trained at any level of my education in whatever you want to call it, Africana, black studies, African-American studies. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I think about, oftentimes, especially recently, I'm like, what does it mean that I've effectively leveraged the platform that has African-American studies at the core of it? But I, you know my orientation to the work, right? Being trained as a historian of African American history. Um, and and you know, I, I know I've had different people on here and thought about like what does it mean that you are classically trained from undergrad, masters to PhD in one of the, you know, Africana black studies, you know, African American studies. Um but yeah, that that's just something that like I respect I respect the field. And also is, like you said, I want to also engage in and through more rigorous study also contribute to. Um, you know, is ultimately at the core I want black people to know about their history and and to know that, you know, black folks resisted, you know, and, and, and also that they survived. And also understand what they were up against when they didn't quote unquote resist because ultimately we would not be here. We wouldn't have been able to survive um, the treachery that we did and we are still going through, yes. right?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so,
1: yeah. And, and so let, let's talk about Black Studies in another way. What does the actual field mean to you?
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, for me, the field really means there is a common ground, right? That I think, and th- but this is subject to debate. There's a common ground. Right. Blackness has been constructed as a problem for the West. So exploitation of Black people is not a problem for for the West. Right. Enslavement, colonialism, extraction. That's not a problem for the rest, for the West. But Black existence as such, right, as human beings, as people with philosophies and ideas and aspirations, is a problem to that project, the problem of the creation of it's really a problem of modernity. Right and so black studies is somehow centrally involved with a confrontation right with the problem of white supremacy and empire and also an exploration of what blackness is in its detail or in some larger theoretical sense so as a con- it, that's sort of for me the core right now, I'm not a racial essentialist, right? And sometimes when you say things like that, people are like, oh, you're being essentialist because black people are different all over the world. Well, of course, because we're human beings, right? <laughs> human variation right. is extraordinary. But there's a, common, there's a common problem, right, even if it's manifested differently, and then a set of questions that emerge. And it's an- those questions are, are answered differently. But, but to me, that becomes a common thread, which now— the problem is that in some places black studies is constructed as where all the black people are or where all the thing, all the times that black people, stuff about black people is taught. But not everything that's taught about black people is black studies. Right. Not everything. Mm-hmm. Is, I mean, take, for example, sociology, an entire field built around black people that is generally speaking, not black studies. Right. I mean, the, right. right. I mean, I always say. You know, black people on the South Side of Chicago might be the most studied people in the world, right? Because the discipline was mm-hmm. built on on them in large measure, right? And so, um, so it it for me it it has to it has to raise the question not just of description of black people, but an accounting of the in, uh, an accounting of what this encounter between the project of white supremacy and modernity and black humanity produces and That fully contemplates black existence, subject matter, language, ideas, a lot like all of that. Right. So it's not, you know, it's not let's fit black people into this study. It's something much more um, robust that organizes it for me.
1: Look, that's important. Um, and and yeah, you're right about sociology. I kind of forgot about that from comps uh, last year. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so within Black Studies, one 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 more question. Um, the, like like you talked about, like what is Black Studies and what is it not, right? Um, that also comes into in terms of what books are being written about articles and such. And, and I I always love asking folks uh, who I call season saints of the game. um, What do we need more rough, right? You're, you're in a African American studies department. So what areas of, of uh, the study of of the black world and black studies need more scholarly attention in your opinion?
0: Well, I will say this. Um, There's so much, I mean, so that needs to be done for me the the most important underutilized resource is archives at hbcus Mm. i mean i there are so many treasures there that because and it's a consequence of you know all of the things we just talked about the underfunding of The resources of HBCUs combined with the hierarchies of academia have left this massive gap where people are consistently saying that things don't exist that exist. Um, We have resources. We have, you know, so that there's a lot of archival work that needs to be done. And it's not even necessarily like way. I don't even necessarily mean history, but just to understand What's happened, right? Like, because American culture is so is so, um, you know, so easy to shift attention, and so much is disposed or treated as disposable. We don't understand the '80s or '90s. It's not that '90s. It's not that long ago. Right. right? Um, And so I, you know, so it still has contemporary relevance. So I would, I would say, for me, it's the materials are the thing that I'm most interested in. We need many more institutional histories. Um, We need to think theoretically about black institutions. We need, you know, now people have been talking about the long civil rights movement. We need to think about the deep civil rights movement, all the variety of organizational forms that have that actually more not binaries. I mean, you're literally talking about dozens of different types of organizations that need to be understood in conversation with one another. Um, I will also say I'm going to make two plugs. One, Mm -hmm. I want a history. Okay of um, African and Caribbean students who were trained at HBCUs who went on to become leaders in post-colonial nations. Definitely. Huge gap in the history of Pan-Africanism, but these were, so that's one. Um, And there are still so many figures who we need um, biographies of. My big person is Lorraine Hansberry's Uncle William Leo Hansberry, the father Of African studies, can't believe There's not a biography of him Built a field And could not be, look, and couldn't receive His PhD at Harvard because there was no one to test him Wow Because he built the field
1: There it is There it is Well, hey, no, that, look, I know You know, we, we gonna get this message out to the people So that, you know the, These folks who are training folks uh, can, uh, can start producing these, you know, undergraduate theses that can, you know, get, get rolled out into a graduate sc- uh, school application and Hey, you know, let, let's make it happen y'all. Uh, and so, pl- pl- but make sure you cite this interview if you like, <laughs> I'm glad that maybe not. But, um, uh, so, so also let, let's, let, let's pivot a bit to back to your journey here. Um, you are not only one of the most productive scholars in the game, you're also one of the most thoughtful, um, as well. And I'm pretty sure that you probably put that same level of care and thoughtfulness, maybe into how you conjure your writing process too. So I am very interested to know. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Imani Perry, my friend, how you, How do you, what's your writing process like? At, at least at, in this current iteration.
0: So this is a great question, which i am always, I'd never answered well, but I'm going to try to do it. Better. Okay. So I literally, people don't believe this because I put out a lot of work, but I take a very long time. I think about things for years and sometimes decades. Like, so I was talking to someone earlier today and I was like, <laughs> I've been thinking about this talk that Sonia Sanchez gave in 1991, 30 years. I've been thinking about it for 30 years. Now it part of my thought about it wound up in Vexy thing. Part of my thought about the talk is will be in the probably what will be the last book I ever write, which just because it's I've been taking thinking about it so long. but like that's how I, I work. I sort of and I have notes everywhere. like sometimes when I'm trying to remember something, I will I send myself emails. So if my email inbox ever crashes, then I might have a breakdown. But I've been sending myself emails for decades. Um, So I take, I marinate on things for a long time. I am, I am promiscuous in my thoughts. I will think about anything. I don't discipline myself away from thinking about everything. I just write it down. Once I get to a project that's coherent, then I, I collect a lot of information. I outline, outline, outline. Like i I will spend over a year outlining.
1: What does an outline for you look like? Because I, I don't want to make I, I don't want to make exactly. the assumption that everyone knows what that what that means. And,
0: and I think it sort of I do think it depends on what works for you. For me, the outline is okay. Here's the idea, and here's how I'm gonna make this argument. Right, I'm moving. Yeah. So, in books that have arguments, right? Once again, just more complicated. <laughs> but <laughs> how am I gonna make the argument? And then I will look at it, and I'll be like. Okay, so I can go A, B, C, D, E. I can make the steps to the argument chapters. And then inevitably I'm like, that's not right. What I think is the answer is not the answer. And then I have to read more. And then I come back and I'm like, now I think it's this. And then I'd be like, but that's dry, right? Or uninteresting, right? And then I come back. So it's like once you, so the, the the outline is the process of getting to what's the point? What's the argument? How am I going to establish it? And then for me, it's going back to say, how how do you give examples that bring you to the point that are inviting, both in terms of the sense of being compelling and also that invite argument against what you're saying, right? Because scholarly work is a conversation. So if you say, look, here's how I get here, A, B, C, D, E the conversation if you make that play and somebody can say wait a minute b b is not right you know b should have been this over here right and then you can have and then you're engaged doesn't require somebody i don't ever want people to parrot what i'm saying i want people to to be invested to think about it with me right like that's the idea scholarship is a conversation right um it's different from the writing that i do that is more creative that is less scholarly which is where the reading is about pleasure and journey, right? And some illumination, it has a different... So part of it is also for me, the process is also dictated by the point and by the question, right? So like, if my question is, you know, for example, if my question is like, why why is Raisin in the Sun the most widely produced play by a black woman in the history of the United States? The answer, has to have a you know it has a spiritual component, has an emotional component, has a historical component. So the shape has to, I want to reveal my own connection with this writer in order to invite people who haven't read her to get into it, right. So the shape of the book is dictated by what what I want to produce in the work, which then in turn dictates where I research, which then in turn dictates how do I structure it for that book, it was like, wait a minute. I want to be chronological, but there's some questions here, right? Like why is she always so fixated on this question about fathers, (laughs) right? If it's strictly chronological, I can't get into that. So I had to like do sort of mixture. It's partially chronological, it's partially thematic, right? Like each stage of her life, we're going to go into some questions that emerge in a distinct way in that moment. So, so, um, it's very, for me, as someone who is a math nerd, it's very mathematical, structural. Um, You know, I need to know where the repetitions are going to be. <laughs> you know, I need to know, I need to know the numbers, the, like, the, the what some people call the Trinitarian impulse of academics. Things got to come in threes, because that's what the po- point gets in your head, et cetera, you know? So, Yeah.
1: Love it. Love it. And, um, you know, and, and it's, and it's important too, because I think that when people see a book come out and, and in your case, a certain number of books, people automatically think, you know, I think they'll have, um, assumptions or other things. So, I, so the question was also kind of remembering some, uh, some book talks that I had seen you, uh, give where that question of, oh my gosh, how do you, you know, which I'm sure at this point, you're kind of like, all right, dog, like, I, you know,
0: Well, and also, yeah, and I <laughs> it feels, I think for me, it's also complicated because I, I acknowledge, I mean, I have hypergraphy. I have to write every day. That's just part of the way I manage a very complicated human existence, right? We all have ways of managing them. You know, sometimes it's donuts, sometimes it's writing. Um, <laughs> more often I but it's also—I am not someone who worships at the altar of productivity, right? You know, if if I if I could write an article like Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, and that be the only thing I'd ever written, I would feel like I had had an extraordinary career. I mean, I just—I, you know. You could, If you can write something of 20 pages and transform it, two generations of scholars with it, boom, like to me. So, I, so I'm so i not, I think people think I'm in a rat race to write a lot of, that's my thing, <laughs> you know, writing my mm-hmm. thing. It is not, but I don't think that it is something that is, should be aspired to on its own terms and also I don't I don't believe in quick. I don't believe in pushing. I don't do writing schedules every day. If I'm if I'm I write a, a lot of stuff at the same time, but if I'm like I don't have anything to say about this, I will put it down. Sometimes I put stuff down for 3 years, right? Like if I don't have anything I just go to the next thing. So it's like so it's more round robin. It's not I have to see this project to fruition. South to America my next book is the first time that I have worked on one thing. Mm. Like, not working on other things at the
1: same time. Well, this is kind of out of order, but I think it's very appropriate. What was kind of, you know, as the book is coming out in a couple months now, and I think you can have some time to kind of reflect. In the moment, how does that feel? As someone who, I think you had said in another um, interview, like, I'm so used to doing multiple things at once, right? degrees or you know uh, you know all these so how does it how did that feel what was that experience like for you
0: very uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> very uncomfortable but you know it and it was emotional i mean and also so much of it was in the pandemic but it's you know to what i learned is that part of the m- movement from thing to thing allows you not to experience the grief that is inevitably embedded in work that's meaningful for you. Mm-hmm. So, I'm in this in this book, and it's you know, it's there's death there for people I love. There are places that I remember that are no longer the same. You know, there's yearning. You know, for uh, and and so the uncomfort discomfort was the settling in opened up it's and it's also because it's such a per. it feels like such a personal book opened up a breath of emotion that um on a daily basis that i wasn't really wanting to feel all the time <laughs> so
1: yeah cool. yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: well i'm i'm excited about this next book i'm i'm definitely looking forward to january and so um in one of the last questions we got here for you um you know and this is a point of graduate student, uh, privilege here. Um, you know, and, you know, uh, and also, you know, one of my, one of my good friends, uh, Naya Bates, uh, you know, she, she speaks very highly of you. Hello friend. Um, I know you're listening. Um, and I, I think she took one of your classes, uh, in the last, I think in the last, I think last year or something like that, she spoke highly of it. Um, so this one is for the graduate students and everyone else as well. But, um, as a graduate, as a graduate student like myself that will soon begin the dissertation writing stage of the doctoral process, I slash we, you know, the other uh, dissertators, uh, we need all the tips possible to complete as something that you know yes. is a long journey. Um, what general tips do you have for graduate student writers and dissertators?
0: Yes. Okay, I have tips and I'm going to give them and then people are constantly telling me that this is not realistic but I'm going to give them because I think they help you produce your best work. You have to continue being a human being. This thing of being where people are miserable in graduate school and not doing anything but uh you know working on their dissertations and slogging it through it and there's no other time in your life where you will be if you're on a fellowship paid to do your own work. That's just not, that's not what academia is. (laughs) Academia is a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff that's not, so if you, so to me, even, even if you're broke, I had a, listen, my, my, um, stipend was $10,000. I had a ball in graduate school. I had big fun. I went to parties. I figured out how to get my little money together to go on vacation. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it is, Yes, graduate students are exploited, graduate students are broke, but there is a luxury involved in being able to live the life of the mind. And if you don't grab it, then you will not be able to figure out how to grab it in. I mean, I'm always, that's why I'm always like talking about how important your presence in the world is, Adam, because you remind us how, what a joyful enterprise this is, really. And it is, Thank you. you know, and it, I think it's really easy. You know, academia is a mess. We know this. It's easy to dwell on that. But there's also something really beautiful. So that's one. Two, I think your peer relationships are your most important relationships. People think it's about who you work with. And, of course, that is relevant. But your friends, your peers, the people you will be going through the career with, those are the most important relationships you could cultivate. Don't be trying to compete with everybody all the time build real relationships I, you know I right. it over and over again but these are the people who you'll be going through it with you know and and also being out in the world is important going to conferences like meeting people developing the courage right you know maybe one out of five people is a jerk Don't worry about that one out of five the other four people, who will likely be receptive or at least gracious, those are relationships, right? So it's also requires some courage. So I say that too. Um, And I also think, and this is tricky advice to give, but um, I wanna say, and I gotta figure out the right way to say it. It's not a sprint. And people think their fortunes are cast forever. Based upon what happens in graduate school, and you know, or who gets what award, or who gets which record, and it's just not true. You know, we're not, we're we're not sprinters, we're not gymnasts. We don't time out, right? <laughs> you know, you can. Mm-hmm. This is a yep. this is a long, long career. I remember, I'll never forget. I had a conversation with Laurel Th- Thatcher Ulrich when she first joined the faculty at Harvard, and and she was like, I don't really know what happened. Like, I was just up, I think she was in Vermont, like doing my little, and then all of a sudden, you know, my quote is all over the place. <laughs> like, well mm-hmm. they history, it's every, you know, and all of a sudden she becomes an academic star as a very senior scholar. And I think, but the thing that would move me is that she saw the value of her work long before that happened. Right. You have to value your work. You have to think it's important um, because it's it's in some way it's like a crapshoot. You don't I mean, there's no meritocracy. There's no meritocracy anywhere, including academia. So you got to be invested in it. You have to see the value of it. You have to nurture it. You have to even if nobody else does, you have to care about it because it's too much. It's too hard to believe whatever the whims of this of this landscape are.
1: Amen to that. Amen to that. And so um before we get out of here, there, there are two more questions I want to ask you. All right. Well, two and a half. One, going back to teaching. Cause like I said, from the from homie Naya and other folks, right? Josh Bennett too, you know, had him on uh a year, I think a year and a half ago. Um, heard you're uh, an amazing professor. Um, so I'm actually very interested to know which answer to this is.
0: Okay.
1: You've been teaching for a good minute. Yeah, yeah. So I'm. you've taught a lot of different classes. What has been your favorite class? And you don't necessarily have to say it like when you taught it. So people, you know, that might know that, you know, that time so they don't get, you know, coming at you. But over the course of your career as a, as a teacher and a professor, what has been your favorite class to teach over the years and why?
0: OK, so I'm going to say two. There's one um, that I usually I, I, I usually co-teach with Eddie Glaude, but it gets co-taught by various configurations. But it is a graduate course called the African-American Intellectual Tradition. And I love that class because it's graduate students. They already come with, you know, commitments and investments and they're passionate uh, ready about what it means to live the life of the mind, but it is a tradition that just doesn't get elaborated hardly anywhere as a tradition. And so they're just these beautiful moments of illumination that happen in that class, you know, and it's, and it's fun because it's one of those classes where grad students become peers mm. you know, and are teaching us too. And I love that. Um, and then I also really love, um, this class, I've only taught once. I co-taught this class during the pandemic via Zoom um, with uh, visual artist, Mario Moore. And it basically, it was an art studio class and a music class and a history class in which we, um, it, was, it was, I can't, now I can't remember the name of the course, but basically what we did was we imagined the moment at Antietam when Black soldiers enter into the Civil War. And we tried to spend the class thinking about what is the sound that the black soldier made, right? And what is that battle cry as opposed to the rebel yell, right? Like for anybody who's listening who grew up in the South, you know the concept of the rebel yell, right? It's like harrowing sound, right? Mm -hmm. What did their battle cry look like? And and Mario came up with this concept. And we used the idea of the battle cry. We used hip hop to imagine it. So we did black music history, we did sound, we did, you know, percussion, beats, rhyming, and also looked at images of, of, of the Civil War and like, and soldiers. And, and so they did visual arts and, you know, they did various visual pieces and sonic exercises. And it was just, it was, creativity is such an important part of being an intellectual. And so often in academic spaces, we leave that part out and there's something that happened with the creative juices flowing that made the classroom really special. So I want to do those kind of mixed discipline courses more now that I've had that experience.
1: Well, great here. So um, this will be the last one we got for you. Yes. Um, yes. So last question before we head out, money. because I rarely work long stretches without music playing. I wondered. If you can curate a playlist based on your forthcoming book, South to America, a journey below the Mason Dixon line to understand the soul of a nation coming out January, 2022. Yes. What 10 songs would go in said playlist?
0: Okay. And here's what I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to tell you some of them. Okay. Okay. I'm not gonna answer, Cause I'm actually going to do that. I'm going to playlist. So I'm not telling okay. all of them, but there's some that are out there that'll, um, that I've talked enough about that'll um so you know of course the Commodore Zoom um Gil Scott Heron's I'm new here Mm -hmm.
1: um, and
0: also I'm coming from a broken home um uh uh, BB King and Bobby Blue Blands I'll take care of you I'd also put I would like yeah probably put Gil Scott Heron's version of that on on that too. Um Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I I would want little Richard in there, and um, and uh, and Aretha, that kind of muscle souls, and also mm-hmm. the sound, um, so and then oh, oh, so I'm really interested. There's a, a lot of kind of West Virginia, you know, mm-hmm. type stuff in the book. So, you know, Bill Withers, Dolly Part, um. I'm, I'm so interested in how like Tammy Wynette and Dolly Parton became these, they come from that same route and they become very different types of people politically from that same route. Bill Withers is like sounding different, like he's central to black music, but that mm-hmm. sound is different, you know? So yeah, I'm sorry. That's all over the place. It's more than I wanted to tell you, but Zoom is the centerpiece because Zoom for me by the Commodores is the song that captures home to me. Got to listen. Anybody listening, listen to the lyrics and you'll get it.
1: Amen. Well, Imani, you are um, a delight. You're an amazing person. I always remember when I first met you in person at the June Jordan event at, um, at Harvard, and I never get being like, hi, I'm Adam. And you're like... I know you. <laughs> I was like, oh, where? <laughs> and so like, you know, and that was like, I think I was still in Boston. So that would have been like 2018, maybe. Um, and so a lot obviously, you know, happened in terms of, you know, our trajectories and things that we've been able to do. And, and I, and, and it, it is um, a privilege and, and, and a great honor to to call you a friend. And, you know, and, and also family member, too, because, <laughs> oh, you know, your your mom is just like, Her look, You
0: she let me know you have been adopted. So there we go.
1: <laughs> look, look, <laughs> look, I love it. And so, y'all, please, please, please go get Dr. Amani Perry's forthcoming new or forthcoming book. Uh, so uh, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason Dixon to understand the soul of a nation and uh from what you just heard there's a forthcoming playlist as well um that that that'll be uh uh, much larger than than the couple that she peppered on us here today to season the conversation with a whole great bit of spice not just salt and pepper but we got a lot else on here too so um so so y'all please if you if you love this episode please rate us and re- review us wherever you get your podcast and uh please we need to know how we doing and uh please hit that fire we you know we, we know we doing good out here um and so y'all my name is Adam mcneil host of New Books in African American Studies and for the 90th time
0: yay
1: 90th time y'all over and out
0: thanks adam